This is Chris Hargraves, and welcome to Tips for Lawyers podcast, episode 35. Being 35, you can find the show notes and comments and links and so on for today's podcast at tipsforlawyers.com slash podcast slash 35. As always, I wanted to say thank you to those of you who are listening to this. I really appreciate uh, the fact that you are prepared to spend a bit of time with me each week or each couple of weeks, depending on when you tune in. And I also really appreciate those of you who have left reviews and rankings on iTunes. Uh, it makes a big difference to me. It gives me a nice warm, fuzzy feeling inside to know I'm actually helping some of you out. If you did want to do that for me, I'd really appreciate it. You can get there at tipsforlawyers.com slash iTunes. That'll redirect you straight over to the iTunes page for the Tips for Lawyers podcast, and you can leave a review and a ranking there. Uh, that's about all I had to say by way of introduction today. And as you will have seen in the title today, we are going to talk about why your bills don't get paid. And it's really in two major sections, as you're going to see. The first, I wanted to work through some uh, some practical strategies uh, for getting the bills paid. And the second, I wanted to have a chat about why we don't actually do all of those things. So let's get straight into it. I think the first and most obvious reason that your bills don't get paid sometimes is that the client simply doesn't have the money to pay your bills. Now, uh, that's really your fault, sorry to tell you that, but there is this fascinating creature called a trust account that most lawyers have access to, and that is where clients can put their funds in advance to be stored and secured for you as a lawyer to utilise for your fees and outlays. And if you are in an area where your clients are at risk of incurring large fees and you don't have some reliable mechanism of getting paid at the end, then you need to get money in trust. And this really should be a no-brainer, frankly. If the client can't afford to pay you at the start and you have no reason to think they could afford to pay you at the end, then, you know, what's exactly going to happen in your mind? Think about that. So, get money and trust. That is the first, most obvious, and and frankly, uh, simple solution to almost every problem. Now, it doesn't, of course, save you in the event of a dispute about your fees, but we're not really talking about that today. We're talking about fees that are otherwise fine, um, but you don't necessarily have a good mechanism for getting paid, or something you have done has been the cause of some sort of disruption to getting paid. And we will get onto a few of those topics, but absent a dispute where there are specific issues with your bills, getting money in trust is the way you get paid. Simple, right? Let's go to the next one, though, uh, which is undercutting your estimates to get the job. And I see this a lot. Uh, It's an interesting idea to give a low estimate and I don't think generally we do it on purpose. I think generally we do it because we're extremely optimistic about how straightforward a task is going to be. But over time, of course, what you start to realize is that everything takes longer than what you think. Clients always want to ask you questions that you have already explained or that you have already put in your advice, and you always end up with more documents and messy facts than what you realized at the outset of a matter. Now, that might not be the case for some areas of law I appreciate, uh, so you might not find that, for example, in uh, basic conveyancing, in some sort of leasing matters, maybe in a commercial uh, context, some of those front-end style matters, but in a lot of litigation uh, and certainly in restructuring and taxation matters, you often find out more information as the matter advances and you need to allow for that to some extent. Uh, You can't second-guess everything all the way through and multiply your estimate by a thousand to account for every single contingency, but you can take a reasonable guess at what information 
is likely to flow in throughout the course of the matter that you're engaged to do. So undercutting is an issue not in and of itself, but the fact that you cannot possibly do the job for that particular amount. And that does, of course, lead to a dispute because one way or another, uh, you then either need to send an update or you don't send an update and you send a bigger bill or you end up writing off your time to actually meet the invoice that you had issued, uh, sorry, the estimate that you had issued. So none of those are particularly attractive solutions. So I think it's a good idea to make sure you are applying a rational estimate and speaking to a more experienced practitioner when you're doing your estimates can really be helpful. Uh, If you find yourself being optimistic, uh, then I would add up what you think it is going to be. And I would use that as the lower range of your estimate. So figure out what you think it is actually going to cost and use that as the lower range and then add a rational amount of time on top of that for every task along the way so that you at least have a little bit of comfort uh, to allow for those things that are expected but unexpected. Hopefully that makes sense. The next thing, and it's connected with undercutting to some extent, but it's almost the other extreme, which is overworking a file. Uh, And you do see this a lot where sometimes we're not 100% sure what we're doing, uh, which is always a little bit dangerous. And depending on who you have access to or what sort of supervision you have, you can sometimes start to flounder a little bit. And as a result, you end up actually chasing down all sorts of things that perhaps are completely irrelevant, uh, perhaps have no merit at all. You really drill down into excruciating detail on things that just didn't need it. Uh, This is where the person reads 35 correspondence volumes when they really only needed to read one contract to arrive at the conclusion. And a good example of how to avoid this is when you look at, uh, for example, uh, judgments and you see what judges are doing. And when they can arrive at a final conclusion on the basis of a particular issue, they often will not go on to actually make any decision in relation to the rest. Now, that's not necessarily something that you have available to you in a direct way, but it is an indication that what you need to do is you need to figure out where your time is most valuably spent and whether what you are doing is actually adding any value to the client. Because if it's not and you end up floundering, you end up sinking a whole pile of time into things that are irrelevant, at best, your time is going to get written off. At worst, uh, your time is going to get billed. There's going to be an argument. Why did you spend a thousand hours doing this particular thing? as opposed to not doing that thing, which would have been a more prudent course. Now, of course, sometimes the benefit of hindsight kicks in here and you have uh, the conclusion you reached ultimately was that a certain amount of effort might not have been uh, delivering the outcome the client was hoping for. But that is very different to making choices, which in fact could have been headed off at the pass, as it were, right at the start of the particular task. So overworking a file and, of course, front-loading a file, doing a lot of work up front, uh, for example, a huge amount of preparatory work for a trial that perhaps is a year off where the matter might settle. Now, you might need to do different preparatory work for getting the matter to a mediation or a settlement conference or something like that, but there is a good and appropriately timed series of peaks in in a number of matters where if you front-load the matter with a lot of fees, uh, then you run two risks. Firstly, you're going to go over your estimate. And secondly, of course, you're going to have the potential for overbilling or writing off once again. Now, again, that does vary from different matter to different matter and from different work type to different work type. They all have their peaks and troughs so far as when fees are most heavily incurred during, for example, in a commercial matter, you have the due diligence period, the negotiation period, then, of course, the execution period, and then things tail off there. And there is always a flurry of activity. They are relatively predictable, Uh, Sometimes they are unpredictable and that's when we all have to gear up urgently to do something. But 
by and large, you can figure out what's going to happen when and pace yourself appropriately uh, so that the client's not incurring fees unnecessarily at the time if there's a prospect the matter may not advance beyond that particular stage. The next thing to look out for, of course, is scope creep. And uh, this happens pretty regularly. Uh, You define a scope in your letter of engagement or your cost agreement or whatever you want to call it. And you say, for doing X, Y, and Z, we will charge you A dollars, B dollars, and C dollars respectively. And then whilst you're in the course of doing X, Y, and Z, uh, the client comes to you with a series of miscellaneous inquiries, G, E, F, H, Q, T, and S. My alphabet's pretty good as you can tell, but those random inquiries, unless they fit within your existing scope, are very, very easily going to throw out your estimates to your clients and as a result, your bill. But unless you tell the client that, the client doesn't think that. And this is for a few reasons. Firstly, clients generally don't actually read letters of engagement or cost agreements in full. They have a tendency just to look to the bottom line and give no consideration whatsoever to the actual scope. Now, I know contractually uh, that that's their problem more so than yours. uh, But as a matter of pragmatism, if there's a dispute on your file, then it's your problem whether you're right or not, because it's hugely disruptive to your practice. So the more you can keep a client up to date and make things like that very clear. Hey, John. Uh, you sent me this question, just so you know, we weren't actually geared up for that in the original estimate, so it's going to cost you an extra 500 bucks or so to deal with that. Is that okay with you? That makes everything clear. You can update your systems. You can make sure you've given the client an estimate in writing for the additional task, and you don't get stung at the other end when your bill ends up $500 more than what they were expecting. And connected with all of those is the lack of updates. Uh, Clients, by and large, don't appreciate a lot of the back office stuff that happens in relation to legal work. They only really appreciate the product, and that's understandable. That's what most people appreciate at the end of the day, which is the end result. Now, in some cases, the end result, which might even be a couple of page letter, uh, in fact, involved hundreds of hours of work at the other end. And so it is sometimes difficult for a client to appreciate that, but it's also difficult for a client to appreciate that just because they're not getting a letter. Uh, doesn't mean that nothing's going on. So updating your client both in terms of cost and status of the matter is by far and away the best way to ensure that they are uh, on board with what is happening, uh, that they aren't necessarily sidelining everything uh, and throwing you off course and derailing your uh, beautifully organized system in terms of keeping things streamlined and efficient. And it just makes them generally happier. So they are always going to feel better looked after with more updates Now, if you're constantly updating your estimates, uh, despite there being no real change in scope, then you need to give some more thought to your estimates. Uh, Because if that's happening a lot, then clearly you're just not estimating well enough and you need to get better at that. Uh, Likewise, you might be undercutting yourself, like I described before, if you're finding you're constantly having to update your estimates. So those are the five, I guess, general strategies. And I don't think any of those are really world-beating strategies. But the question is, why don't we do them? That's the interesting thing, isn't it? Why don't people do them? Because everyone knows that the safest way to get your fees paid is to get money in trust. And yet so many people don't get money in trust. Now, for many people, it's because they're afraid to ask. They think that it shows that they don't trust their client to pay the bills. And certainly some clients get upset about that kind of thing. Um, But the reality is, unless they are a long-standing client and they have a demonstrated history of paying their bills on time and in full and without complaint, 
then you should be getting money in trust, if at all humanly possible. Now, there are some alternatives there. If you're in property, I know the habit is of getting paid at the end. Likewise, in personal injuries, many of the no-win, no-fee style litigation matters are actually paid at the end as well. So, obviously, there are some exceptions to that rule. But unless you have a good reason, not getting money in trust is simply a bad call. And you're doing it because you're afraid that there will be some sort of rejection from the client. To my mind, that sort of rejection is excellent to flush out at the start. If they're not prepared to put money in trust at the start, then they're probably not going to pay your bill later. That's just how it is. Happens time and time again. Get the money up front. It's interesting as well. It's the same reason we undercut. We're afraid we're not going to get the job. But of course, at the same time, knowing that we can't actually do the job for the price that we're quoting, what we're doing is we're softening the approach. Now, I'm not against fixed fee and I'm not against doing things cheap, but if you can't actually do it and you're just terrified that someone's going to take their work elsewhere unless you cut your fees in half, well, you're not actually making a profit anymore. So that sort of model isn't very sustainable. It's ultimately a question of fear. Almost all of the reasons we don't do these things or we do do these things if they're causing our bills not to be paid is because we're terrified. We are terrified of updating our clients about costs, in particular on large matters where there's been a significant overrun. We are terrified of telling our clients when they come to us miscellaneous inquiries that they are in fact going to cost more money. And we are terrified of giving any excuse to our client to have a go at us for the amount we charge or the way we practice. But if you can get past that fear, then you are going to be able to do a lot better in terms of your debtors. You're going to be able to add more value to your firm by having lower collection issues, by having fewer write-offs, and by having happier clients. And I think that's a pretty good list of things to be aspiring to. So if you are finding yourself not doing these things or you're working for someone who is consistently struggling with these things, try and pick up the game a bit in terms of getting money in trust, in terms of quoting appropriately. And you know what? If the work's not there, the work's not there. And you might need to think of some sort of area, some sort of business model, some sort of approach that's going to get you work that actually pays the bills and maintains profitability, as opposed to work that causes all sorts of grief at the other end. So this is Tips for Lawyers. That was episode 35. It's been a pleasure to talk to you again. I hope all your bills get paid and that you have a wonderful week. This is Chris Hargraves signing off. I'll see you next time.